0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler, And this is episode 36 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 9th of October. Leon, what's on the slate? For this week
1: well Gary today we're going to be talking to Maxine Atong she's well she was born in Trinidad and she's a business coach she works out of the United States as well and uh, we're going to be having a chat to her all about business coaching
0: yeah she's got some good clear ideas and after
1: that we're going to have a
0: chat with economist
1: Stephen Kekoulis
0: all about the TPP so let's listen to Maxine and uh, a lovely West Indian accent We spoke to Maxine by Skype and the line through to the West Indies wasn't all we would like. There's a bit of squeaking on it, but the sound is pretty clear. So enjoy a nice interview.
1: Maxina Tong, you've been leading a small and large team for about two decades now and uh, in organisational settings and in private coaching. Tell us how it works as a coach. What do you get out of teams?
2: As a coach, what I primarily do when teams come to me and teams usually come because there's a problem. First thing that I really think about in my mind is how safe is everybody to talk about a problem. So the first thing I go about doing when I meet with teams is to really reassure people that we have some safety in the room and to check, on the level of safety in the room and uh, so to help people promote the safety in the room I usually work with a team to set about set up rules rules you know what do you want out of this space how would the space feel safe for you what will make you not safe because if, if I don't feel safe I wouldn't be able to talk openly and most times when teams have some problems or they need to build as a team they need to have some honest conversations so step one would be to test the level of safety in the room and work to build on that level of safety. And the next steps? Well, the next steps so it so the next steps will be to have an honest conversation about what is going on in that room. So I I so usually I say, you know, what's going on? As simple as that. So some of the rules we establish, some of the rules we establish will be things like making sure everybody's seen and heard. Um, please don't judge what anybody is saying. Have some personal responsibilities speak on speak on your behalf, so use a lot of I statements, please try don't don't um, report for someone else. let everybody use their voice in the room, and of course, respect however it is defined for that group so that that would be some of the rules that we set up, and then the third piece will be to ask what's going on and to begin having the honest conversation what
1: sort of com- what sort of problems do teams come to you with?
2: <laughs> I'm smiling. Because sometimes it could be, uh, um, sometimes it could be team versus leader. So in that instance, it could be where they see the leader as not being consistent in application of rules and policies as it relates to the individuals in the room, or it could be that they don't trust the leader, and that's that's a big one with a lot of teams because trust is is it's not really a nth uh, characteristics it's something that ebbs and flows so you, you have that a lot and then sometimes there's conflict between team member and a team member and that the team does not get along or they don't work towards the same objective at, at the same time so those are some of the common issues that I see in teams
1: so how do you deal with something like ineffective leadership
2: so an ineffective well an ineffective leader impacts both themselves and or I should say himself or herself and they would also impact on the team so the question would be what is that Any, how does that ineffective leadership manifest itself because very often what we will see is we will see certain behaviors in the team or certain inconsistencies in the team that we tend to want to address an ineffective leader needs to really it comes to self-awareness if i'm not aware that i'm an ineffective leader i will continue to be an ineffective leader so i would recommend coaching where the coach works with the ineffective leader to raise his or her awareness about how he's being ineffective and the impact it's having on his team. That's Step one, and after that, and after that, we would um, I would use the methodology that um, that really is about planning and taking action. Where is your you ask the leader what is what is his vision of leadership? What does he want for himself? What do you want people to say of you when they've left your team or when you've moved on from the organization? R- reflect on some of the actions that that sort of leader, the leader that you want to be. What are some of the actions that that leader would take, and then work to compare. What am I doing now? What needs to change in what I'm doing? And how how do I go about changing it? That's how I'd support them to be more effective. It really needs to start... Go ahead.
1: But that can be very confronting for a leader to discover that they're not that effective. I mean, how much resistance do you find?
2: Well... it's so resistance is part of change so resistance tells me that they are getting to a place of awareness because if i didn't know if i was not aware at all that something was wrong i wouldn't resist i'd just go like oh maxine is talking crap whatever but if it is that maxine is hitting a nerve and i say "Mm, i don't like what she's saying it it doesn't feel good it means that i've started and we we will work through the resistance i will ask the leader you know how do you feel about what what is that feeling telling you? What do you think is behind that reaction? For them to realize that the reason they're reacting is because perhaps there's a grain of truth, or perhaps there's something. About what was said that makes them uncomfortable. So, what about it makes you uncomfortable?
1: That would uh, that would be fairly confronting for any leader.
2: I, yeah, I, it's you know, it, and and these things are done in a spirit of. So, I'm I'm speaking to you plainly, but when I'm with a client, I will not be so direct because each client has their has is his or her own personality, and I would use the language that would be effective with that particular client. So, some clients I'd have to use an analogy which is not about them at all. Some clients I'll have to say, you know, who are people who you admire in the organization? What is their leadership skills like? You know, how are they effective? And let the client begin to build a picture of what he or she may want to be before we even start to do that. And these conversations happen over several coaching sessions. They do not happen in one session because of course the client has to trust me. So the leader, so a lot of the first three sessions or so it's about building trust before we start to do the hard work.
1: I'd imagine then you would have to, when you go in, you would have to analyze very carefully where the client is coming from, where their strengths and weaknesses are in your own view, in your own notebook to do that.
2: Yes, very right. And before before I enter into any coaching arrangement of the client, I usually ask the client to um, two things I could ask them to do. Maybe just do a, an analysis of what they think their strengths are and their weaknesses are or I would ask them to, to, I usually set out a standard set of questions which deals with some personal stuff as well as looks at them in a business perspective. So I would have some pre-information on the client that I would never jump in cold.
1: Now, I mean, how important is teamwork these days for any for any company?
2: You know, I, I think that teamwork is, you know, it's become a buzzword, which is so unfortunate because, you know, we say it, but we don't live it. So we say we're a team because there's a bunch of people working together, whether they're sitting in the same department or or they're sitting virtually. And we call it a team. But teamwork for me is about going for a shared vision. And I think that that notion of sharing a vision, regardless of how big or how small it is, is very often lost when we speak about teams. And it's such a magical thing when five separate individuals could harness their creativity to push towards the same goal. So teamwork for me is a very important word. It's an overused word. It's a word that has lost some some of its essence. But I still hold on to it And it's pure sex
1: So how do you get them sharing a vision?
2: So one of the things I know for sure Is that wherever I go to work I think about what's in it for me So I usually start at the individual level Of the members of the team And ask them What do they want? What is your vision for yourself? Oh, what's your personal vision? It doesn't have to be a long- term goal? What do you want out of this job? You know How can I help you do it as the leader of the team? And very often it may be difficult for some some people it's easier. I use the things that they say in those sessions to look at how I can align their jobs to give them what they want. and when the team so it's, it's it becomes a trade-off. So when the team sets the team vision, Each individual understand what's in it for them to achieve the team vision and this is how we do it within the constraints of the organizational policies and procedures
1: so the key is to actually bring out to them what it means to each of them
2: yes definitely and how do you do that so what I do is again I go back and say what do you what do you want so some people are very very clear I'm really working on this job because every once a year, I like to take a family vacation. Okay, so where do you want a vacation? What kind of vacation you, you want it to look like? Would you like to do something special every two years? Okay, fine. So how are you gonna get more money from this job to do that? Fine. So these are some additional roles and responsibilities we can do in the context of what our, our team vision is, that maybe it's not on your job description, but we could look at compensating you for doing a little bit more. Right. So it's that kind of conversation that I would have, having the boundaries for what we what we can do as what we set as our team vision. And, of course, below that would be the rules of the organization, the policies and procedures that govern how we behave in the organization.
1: So you would have to have that conversation also with the team leader and the individual itself?
2: Yes, definitely. It's, it's definitely to, to say to the team leader, these are some of the things that, that they want. How are we gonna how can we embrace it? Because at the end of the day, I think what's very important for teams is to realize when somebody in the team will never be part of that vision. So
1: it's very challenging
2: work. It is challenging work, but it and and it's also rewarding work. You know, and it's rewarding because when when a team begins to gel and when people can say, This is what I want, and this is what I'm getting out of my team, then a leader does not have to negotiate for work because it's very clear why we're doing the work. Well, Maxine Tong, thank you very much for your time. It was lovely of me to catch up with you today. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much. So,
0: yeah, coaching, interesting, getting into the into the fibre of companies.
1: That's right, and uh, turning people around, really interesting. Anyway, let's have a chat now with Stephen Coolis. So what's your view about the TPP, Stephen? Look,
3: I think it's important to start the discussion on freer trade because from the perspective that it's generally a good idea to reduce trade barriers, to have some consistency in the legal framework with which companies operate their businesses around the world because, of course, we're seeing that in uh, tax issues and other things as well. So I think the the overarching thing is that any policy changes that bring about freer trade and an ease of doing business are generally to be welcome. But with the TPP, it, you know, it, it's, well, first of all, we don't have the details yet They're yet to be released. I think that's coming in a few weeks. Uh, but that said, the stuff that has been released suggests that you know, the benefits to the Australian economy are probably going to be rather small and not quite as big as uh, the proponents of the scheme are, are suggesting.
1: Why do you I, say that? Look, I,
3: a couple of reasons. Um, when we've had government policy, and this is uh, both a Labor and a Liberal issue, when we've had government policy changes that we know have a significant impact on the economy, they tend to release the economic modelling. <laughs> they tend to say that you know, this particular decision we're taking will you know add you know point 0.1 to GDP or you know, $10 billion to GDP per year over the next 20 years. And with that, we get an extra you know, 50,000 jobs. With this one, I'm a bit suspicious that the government has not released any such details. And I know some of the uh, other uh, economic modelers have looked at this sort of thing, and, and they've come up with remarkably small net benefits to the Australian economy from the TPP. Changes. You've got to remember too, also that while you know we will be getting some benefits in in agriculture and the like, we're also giving up things because, of course, that's had the nature of a, of, of a compromise on on trade. You know, we we get benefits on some parts of our economy, but we're also giving up others, and that's where the pharmaceuticals industry is one where we again details yet to be confirmed, but we may be. Um, opening ourselves to an increase in pharmaceutical costs, given that the vast, vast bulk of them are produced overseas.
1: But the America compromised on that. Uh, they moved from 12 years oh. to five years to eight years.
3: They they did. That's true. And that's, again, the, that's the reason why this uh, TPP took so many years to negotiate and was so dreadfully complex. But but I think at the end of the day, as I said, the, the, the move to free trade is always to be embraced. You know, it's it's, it's a better thing. You know, we, we know over the, gosh, the last 50, 100 years of economics that being able to specialise and not having trade barriers or other legal barriers which are effectively trade barriers does restrict the rate at which an economy can expand. It does restrict, you know, a company's ability to expand and become more um, uh, dynamic and profitable and employ more people and these sorts of things. So, again, that's the point. But, again, in getting this negotiation, we've just got to be mindful of what we've given up And we've got to be mindful that at the end of the day, what is the benefit to the Australian economy? Is it, as some people are suggesting, effectively zero on GDP? Or is it going to be a little bit better than that? And, uh, you know, the jury's out on that. And I'm looking forward to seeing the the details and the modelling that come out from the government over the next few months.
1: Well, well the, the, part of the uh, issue was that uh, the TPP was negotiated in secret, was behind closed doors, so the public had no input. Therefore, we don't know exactly what's in it. And so there's questions now about whether it's even going to get through Congress, because most Democrats oppose it.
3: Uh, yes, I think even, even just recently Hillary Clinton, obviously the presidential candidate, let's say for next year, has cast some doubt on it with her comments too. So she's going against uh, Obama in terms of some of her suggestions, uh, early days, of course. So look, and again, it's got to get through all 12 parliament, it's not just the US Congress, which, as you quite rightly highlight, is, is probably the biggest um, uh, one, but it's got got to get through all the other 12 or the other 11, so 12 in total, parliaments of the 12 signatories to the TPP. So, again, even here in Australia, we're hearing you know the, the opposition, the minor parties in the Senate suggesting that they want to see the details before they ratify it. I think most people have a, have a similar view to me. Yes, it's generally a good idea, but we need to see the devil in the detail before we're absolutely sure that there is a net benefit to the Australian economy and all the other The signatories need to see whether it's a a benefit to their economies too. And uh, one other little element that's worth noting too is that um, China... Is not part of it, and obviously now the world's second second biggest economy, soon to be the world's biggest economy. You know, it's a pretty important part of um, of the world that's been been left out of this, and I guess that uh, opens just up another little issue when it comes to how effective the TPP is going to be.
1: Well, the TPP was designed actually to keep China out. Wasn't yes,
3: it? Yeah, well that, that's right. Well, it's to counter some of the how do we say this uh, politely that some of the uh, market um, changes that their government can impose, for example, you know things like their currency, and they just dictate to the corporate world how much they should be producing. So in a sense, it's a a reaction to that. But again, yeah, well, Australia's got a free trade agreement coming with China, which has got some benefits to us as well. So we've got a few multilateral uh, agreements like the TPP. Then we've got a few bilateral ones that we've got with obviously China, Japan and South Korea, which are important too. So look, it's complex. It's, it's a little bit messy, and that's why it's so hard to analyse and just give a you know a, a two-minute rundown on, on the net benefits, because there definitely are some benefits, there's no question. But there are also some costs that have been, at this stage, not fully analysed and not fully released by the government.
1: Uh, one suggestion I heard the other day was for someone like the Productivity Commission to take a look at it and analyse it.
3: Indeed. The Productivity Commission is... Uh, one of the better institutions in australia they look at issues in terms of economic efficiency and by definition productivity it's in their name you know in, in a fear fearless and frank way and they've come out with some well on some of the free trade material they've come out with some quite i might say scathing criticisms of just how little benefit you know the australian economy gets from it so look i, I, I for one would be delighted to see someone like the productivity commission without an axe to grind they're not one of these private sector think tanks that might have an axe to grind somewhere to just just analyze the numbers you know I think the, the best way to judge a policy is when all the facts are on the table, when someone's analysed it, and if we can sort of see, and if they come up with a, a conclusion that the net benefit to the Australian economy is X billion dollars a year, it adds Y number of jobs, and I don't know what those numbers are. But if they can come out, and even if it's a moderate benefit to the economy, well, yes, that would have a, give it give it a, a reasonable sized tick.
1: Do you see potential for more trade agreements coming out of the TPP? Well,
3: that, that's the hope, I, I, I suppose. That, as I said, we've we've got a lot of these bilateral ones. Uh, Australia's had with, um, yeah, as I said, with uh, South Korea. Japan and China to the extent that this does open up the negotiations for other areas. Now these are slow to slow to materialise, of course, and even some of these uh, bilateral um, free trade agreements, the effect of them doesn't take doesn't come into fruition for another five, seven, eight, and ten years. So look, they're, they're still worth doing. There's still important structural changes. But I would love to see a climate where you know economies can focus on what they do well, not have protective barriers in other countries that limit their ability to become even more efficient. Because at the end of the day, it's all about growing the global economy more rapidly, giving everybody a chance to uh, uh, get a job in a particular industry. And for us consumers, the benefit of these free trade agreements generally, not always, but generally is cheaper goods. And that's uh, good for sort of purchasing power and living standards.
1: What's your view about the China Free Trade Agreement?
3: Yeah, look, again... Um, well, we had a few more details on that one actually be released because I guess it's a little simpler than the 12-country TPP. The China one, again, there's there, there are benefits there to the Australian economy. Again, not huge because we are giving up access to some of our markets for things like uh, cars and, and the like. Having said that, we won't have a car industry in a year or two anyway, so I suspect we're not giving up that much on that score. But it does slowly but surely open up access to some of our uh, agricultural markets. Our wine exports are going to have lower um, uh, import tariffs, so we'll be able to compete more. And for China, of course, yeah, the, the thing that we've known for many, many years is the growing middle class uh, with growing uh, middle incomes, if you like, to people with uh, you know decent decent disposable incomes. They do switch their consumption patterns away from what you might call subsistence living, the roof over their head and food and, uh, and clothing and these sorts of things to more what we might call you know semi luxury items like drinking wine like having holidays and these sorts of things and that's where uh, the benefit to Australia can come and even on things like um, you know beef exports and the like it, it, it it's a benefit but again my, my way of judging these sort of things is that you look at the numbers the hard numbers remembering that the Australian economy now is 1.6 trillion dollars a year you know the, the the addition to the economy is really only in the low hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the China free trade agreement so again useful having But it's not a real game changer for our economy.
1: Uh, well, the other issue with China, of course, is that uh, while we're selling goods like, say, wine, food, maybe legal services, financial yes. services, we are doing it in a crowded market and there's more competition. It's not like uh, the days when we were selling iron ore and coal when we were the only game in town. Perfect
3: point. Yeah, that, that's the critical thing to remember. China has also negotiated free uh, akin, something akin to a free trade agreement with the Eurozone, interestingly, at the same time they've done it with uh, the Australian economy. So it's not as if the French and Spanish Italian wine is going to be having a heavy tariff into China, and our wine isn't. It's, it's a, it's a. Um, th- th- there's been some other sort of moving parts in this whole scene as well. But that said, it is better that we have general a general reduction in global tariffs and in uh, restrictions to trade because the whole global economy benefits from that. And that's, I suspect, you know, what you just touched on there uh, in terms of other countries having a uh, uh, competitive. Uh, benefits too from their trade agreements with China, for example, and other countries as well, is that it's a hugely competitive market. And uh, you know, iron ore and coal are the obvious ones, but for things like agriculture, for food, for tourism, for legal and banking services, gosh, you know, it's a very, very crowded market in there. And so, while these trade barriers are helpful, it all boils back to the local companies being efficient smart, and being able to take advantage of these uh, easier access, if you like, to these markets.
1: Stephen Cooles, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And
0: now the news.
1: Well, Gary, first of all, seven years on from the global financial crisis and the International Monetary Fund has lowered its hope for a global economic recovery in 2015-16. It's reduced its forecast for economic growth by 0.2 percentage points to 3.1% this year and 3.6% the next. And it leaves the world growing at its slowest pace since the global financial crisis, which is a real problem adds to all the concerns about the world heading towards recession. The IMF uh, in its uh, World Economic Outlook says slower growth is coming from a range of areas, from political turmoil to lower commodity prices to overhangs from past credit growth. The other big news for the week, of course, was that Australia has joined with the US locking in the 12-country Trans-Pacific Partnership deal after days of marathon talks in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the TPP will cover 40% of the global economy. That covers everything from automobile manufacturing to the price of dairy products, Drugs for treating cancer. It's also designed to counter China's economic influence in the region, which is why President Obama has been pushing it so hard. And the deal negotiations pitted Australia, New Zealand, and public health groups against the US, which was seeking 12 years' patent protection for biologic drugs to protect the the monopolies of big pharma. In the end, a last-minute compromise was reached which fell short of US demands which reportedly provide protection of five and potentially up to eight years of exclusivity protection. There was another last-minute deal over the politically contentious issue of dairy products and the deal will see Canada and Japan opening their tightly controlled markets for dairy products which might be good news for Australian and New Zealand farmers. The problem, though, is President Obama now has a task of getting the PPP through Congress and only a handful of Democrats supported and the changes and he has challenges of locking in republican support in the lead up to an election year and the reality gary is the tpp has been mired in controversy and it's expected to continue to generate debate because the talks have been conducted in secret over the past five years and the text of the agreement is not to be publicly available for at least a few weeks so we don't even know what's in it
0: we don't we don't know what it's in it and is fraught with difficulty in the congress simply because the farm lobby you know texas people like that they're going to hate it
1: that's right that's right. And
0: I don't think, it, you know, we'll be very lucky to see it getting through. Or maybe, being cynical, we might be lucky if it doesn't.
1: Well, I, I think it's got very, very tough task ahead of getting through anywhere. I think it's a real problem. So, anyway, but, you know, bear in mind it was negotiated in complete secrecy and that's what you get. Now, Rabobank is forecasting softer cattle prices with New Zealand and Australian beef exports to the US set to reach their quota limits in the fourth quarter. In addition, it says the global economic conditions like the appreciation of the US dollar and the depreciation of the one and the real in Brazil are having an impact on the beef trade. And it says a strong US dollar has led to a reduction in US exports and support for US imports and at the same time a weakening Chinese economy and the devaluation of the one a curbing beef prices in China and added to that is a devaluation of the real which is expected to boost Brazilian exports in the coming months. Australian farmers are not going to get that much for their beef.
0: Not a lot, no. And Brazil's a big... Competitor.
1: Now, uh, Woodside Chief Executive Officer Peter Coleman says he's, he is not prepared to increase his company's script-based $11.6 billion bid for Port Moresby-based oil search, or even sweeten it with cash. Now, the oil search board last week rejected the offer, saying it undervalues the company, but Coleman said uh, the one-for-four-share proposal is as good as it's going to get. And he, speaking out for the first time, he said the company was not prepared to increase the offer, and adding cash, he said, would be taking a view on the future of volatile oil prices and you can't do that and he said the oil search board might have ruled a line under the Woodside's offer but shareholders including the Papua New Guinea government Abu Dhabi's International Petroleum Investment Co and Capital Group are keen to talk and he said he'd had a good meeting with Papua New Guinea Prime Minister Peter O'Neill who told him his government would welcome Woodside into PNG and will consider conselling its 9.8% stake at the right 9.8% stake at the right price. Coleman's strategy now is wait and see. He, he reckons he's a very patient man he's going to smoke them out
0: the the weight's on his side isn't it that's right and that's particularly is right. the oil price I mean you, you, the Americans have just said that their their stocks have risen by quite a large number yeah and the price is going to Sag a bit again. That's
1: right. Now, the Turnbull government is considering abolishing capital gains tax on startups to encourage entrepreneurs without risking direct government investment in the notoriously fickle fickle tech industry. And there's a proposal by coalition backbencher David Coleman, who's a tech industry veteran, to abolish capital gains tax on investments in private companies that are less than two years old and have revenue of less than $1 And that's being looked at by a task force writing the government's tax white paper. And the change would cost the budget $50 million over four years if it was introduced at the start of next financial year. And it would increase over time to about $30 million a year by 2018-19, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office. By contrast, the 2015 budget small business instant asset write-off that will cost the taxpayer's 8, $1.8 billion over its two-year lifetime was popular with Tony's tradies, but of little use to many other start-ups.
0: It was really derisory when you worked out how the money was spent.
1: That's right, that's right. So um, despite a change in treasurers from uh, Joe Hockey to Scott Morrison, the tax-up up Startup Incentive Plan is now considered a live option, particularly given Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's promise to create a more agile, innovative and creative economy.
0: He's been out spruiking a, a share trading app yeah, personally, which absolutely, is interesting. Absolutely.
1: Meanwhile, the services industry expanded again in September, marking the longest period of expansion since the global financial crisis. And figures from the Australian Industry Group show that the pace of expansion slowed by 3.4 points to 52.3, but it's still above the 50 point mark that separates expansion from contraction. And much of it was driven by the lower Australian dollar and in interest rates, and six of the nine services subsectors, including finance and insurance, property and business services, health and community services, and transport and storage actually expanded. And that's a good sign.
0: There's maybe a bit much pressure on property. I notice all the uh, the uh, big money families in uh, in Australia are all moving into property.
1: Yeah, that's right. We saw it in the BAW Rich List. Smorgans on down. That's right. And the Bank of Queensland is, says it's going to defend a possible class action suit against it by Shine Lawyers, despite not having received any formal notification of proceedings. And Queensland-based compensation law firm Shine Lawyers set, reckons it's preparing to launch a class action against Bank of Queensland on behalf of customers who allegedly lost hundreds of thousands of dollars from money market deposit accounts held with the bank. And Shine Lawyers have alleged that the bank breach its customer obligations after failing to prevent transactions from, from taking place on their accounts. And Shine lawyers reckons the Bank of Queensland customers allege that they suffered losses on their accounts, after transactions were formed on their accounts under the instruction of a Brisbane-based Sherwin financial planner's principal Brad Sherwin. and Sherwin financial collapsed in 2013 following the crash of related companies of which Mr. Sherwin was a director. The expanding services sector and the weaker Australian dollar have driven a 3.9% increase in job advertisement. According to the ANZ Job Advertisement Series, online notice of the jobs rose 4.7%. 4% 4% in September, building on a 1.3% rise in August. Internet job ads are now 13.7% higher than a year ago. Newspaper job ads slipped 2.7% after two consecutive rises. And ANZ chief economist Warren Hogan says the figures are assigned the economy is adjusting relatively well to significant headwinds from falling commodity prices and mining investments, but he reckons it's temporary only. 2016 will be a different story. Dun & Bradstreet's latest business expectations survey showed that 66% of firms are optimistic about the growth of their business in the year ahead. That's the highest figure since January. Retailers are the most buoyant, with an index score of 51.5 points against an aggregate score of 38 points. And across all sectors, 49% of businesses expect sales to increase during the third quarter. That's up from 46.8% at the same time last year and 40% in the third quarter. Significantly, however, the actual profit index, along with sales and to a lesser extent employment, continues to track below expectations. Now, to me, that suggests there's a gap between what businesses are hoping to make and what they actually achieve. Consumer confidence has slipped further, retracing almost half of the record bounce it joined when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister. The ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index slumped further 0.5% last week after falling 3.4% the previous week. And after taking the nation's top job, Mr Turnbull now faces an uphill battle to resurrect confidence in the economy amid, amid global financial market volatility, according to ANZ co-head of economics, Felicity Emmett.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good thing that the um, things have flattened out and got more realistic at putting too much on Malcolm.
1: Yeah. Well, Australia's trade deficit has widened in August against expectation of a slight narrowing. According to figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the nation's trade deficit widened seasonally just at 11% to 3.095 billion. And the result follows an upwardly revised deficit of 2.792 billion in July. Now, that result falls well outside forecasts because economists were expecting the trade deficit would narrow slightly to 2.4 billion. Instead, it's come out at uh, 3.095 billion. So imports rose 1% the month and exports were flat. Now, more than 200 workers are going to lose their jobs when Alinta Energy closes Lee Creek coal mine in South Australia's north in November and the company reckons another 200 jobs will go when Alinta shuts its two Port Augusta power stations by the end of March next year. And uh, so there's further job losses occurring. Coal's still on the nose. That's right. And so with all the upheaval going on in the economy, Gary, the Reserve Bank decided not to blink... And it's, uh, it's held the cash official cash rate steady at its record low of 2%, despite continuing uncertainty around the US Fed's rate hike trajectory and China's economic slowdown. So let's take a look and see what happens. But uh, anyway, uh, ANZ is tipping two further rate cuts uh, next year, taking it down to 1.5%. Anyway, that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're going to have a chat with Scott Witt Middleton from Terram Technologies. Yes, indeed we are. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizZZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.